This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Washington, January 13th, 1803. Dear Sir, the agitation of the public mind on occasion of the late suspension of our right of deposit at New Orleans is extreme. In the Western country, it is natural and grounded on honest motives. In the seaports, it proceeds from a desire for war which increases the mercantile lottery. In the Federalists, generally, and especially those of Congress, the object is to force us into war if possible, in order to derange our finances, or, if this cannot be done, to attach the Western country to them as their best friends, and thus get again into power. Remonstrances, memorials, etc. are now circulating through the whole of the Western country, and signing by the body of the people, the measures we have been pursuing, being invisible, do not satisfy their minds. Something sensible, therefore, was become necessary. And indeed, our object of purchasing New Orleans and the Floridas is a measure liable to assume so many shapes that no instructions could be squared to fit them. It was essential then to ascend a minister extraordinary, to be joined with the ordinary one, with discretionary powers, first, however well impressed with all our views and therefore qualified to meet and modify to these every form of proposition which could come from the other party. This could be done only in full and frequent oral communications. Having determined on this, there could not be two opinions among the Republicans as to the person. You possess the ultimate confidence of the administration and of the Western people, and generally of the Republicans everywhere. And were you to refuse to go, no other man can be found who does this. As to the time of your going, you cannot too much hasten it, as the moment to France is critical. Saint-Domingue delays their taking possession of Louisiana, and they are in the last distress for money for current purposes. You should arrange your affairs for an absence of a year at least, perhaps for a long one, it will be necessary for you to stay here some days on your way to New York. You will receive, here, what advance you choose. Accept assurances of my constant and affectionate attachment. Thomas Jefferson We began last episode with a letter written three days before this one, in which President Jefferson told James Monroe that he would be calling on him for a special diplomatic mission to France. In this episode, we'll explore more of the details of the New Orleans crisis and what happened between October 1802 and January 1803 to lead to Monroe's mission. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to James Early for providing the intro quote for this episode. In addition to being a history professor, James has collaborated with Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast on some great series, including the history of the Civil War in 10 battles, key battles of the American Revolution, and one of my personal favorites, Presidential Fight Club. I'll have a link on the source notes page for this episode, or you can search for History Unplugged anywhere fine podcasts can be found to hear what insight James and Scott bring to various points in American history. The right of deposit for American merchants at the Port of New Orleans was closed on October 16, 1802 by order of the Spanish intendant of the port, Juan Ventura Morales, as mentioned at the end of the last episode. 
And it is an understatement to say that this did not go over well throughout the United States as the news spread. Within two days, word had reached Natchez, the capital of the Mississippi Territory. But soon after hearing that the port was closed to American shipping, the territorial governor, William C.C. Claiborne, received a letter from Juan Manuel de Salcedo, the Spanish governor of Louisiana, assuring him that the intendant had acted without orders from him or the Spanish government. Claiborne would be the first, but certainly not the last, representative of the federal government to respond to the move. On October 28th, Claiborne wrote to Governor Salcedo, quoting the section on the right of deposit from Pinckney's treaty, and asserted that, quote, I find the words of the treaty too explicit to require comment or to admit of a doubtful construction, and requesting that Salcedo respond without delay to inform him if another place along the Mississippi River was being, quote, assigned in conformity to the treaty for an equivalent establishment for American merchants. Like Salcedo, the Spanish minister to the U.S. would express his surprise and assure the U.S. government that the Spanish government had not authorized Morales' order when word reached Washington, D.C. in late November. Though we haven't discussed him until now, at this point in the narrative, Carlos Martinez de Arujo y Tacón, the first Marquess of Casa Arujo, was the longest-serving head of a foreign mission in Washington, D.C. Irujo had assumed his post at the end of Washington's presidency and had a tumultuous relationship with Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, with Irujo going so far as to publish attacks against Pickering and the Adams administration under pseudonyms in the Philadelphia Aurora. With his marriage to the daughter of Pennsylvania Governor Thomas McKean, Irujo developed even stronger links with the Democratic-Republican faction. Once Jefferson assumed office in 1801, the Spanish minister had an administration with which he could work, and he quickly ingratiated himself to the new president. Irujo had worked to help him find a cook for the president's house, and shortly before the news arrived from New Orleans, Irujo had sent Jefferson 100 bottles of champagne, which he hoped, quote, may prove as good as in reputation. After having spent the majority of his tenure in the U.S. on the outs with the presidential administration, Irujo was not eager to have this dispute damage his relationship with Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison, and his efforts to assure the administration were buttressed by other reports they were receiving that Morales had acted independently. Despite the assurances of the Spanish, it seems that Morales, in fact, had been acting under orders. In his book on the Louisiana Purchase, historian John Kukla explains how Spanish King Carlos Cuatro had been persuaded by the Spanish First Minister Pedro Savalos, Manuel de Godoy's puppet minister, to send a secret order to Morales prohibiting the deposit of American goods. Morales, as well as other Spanish colonial officials, had written reports back to Madrid asserting that American merchants had been abusing their rights and using New Orleans as a base of operations for smuggling. As they knew Morales would be questioned, the secret orders instructed him to assert that he had independently reviewed Pinckney's treaty and claimed that he could not allow the right of deposit, quote, without the express permission of the king. Though some Americans suspected that secret orders had been issued, there was not confirmation of that suspicion until a century later when a historian found the order and published it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without regard as to the precipitating circumstances, once again, Americans found themselves at the mercy of the will of foreign nations. And the question of the Jefferson administration increasingly became what was to be done to appease Western shipping interests in the short term, and, more importantly, what was to be the long-term solution for this issue. At this point, the Spanish were still in control of Louisiana and could be appealed to on the terms of Pinckney's Treaty. But once the French took possession of the territory, there was no treaty between the U.S. and that nation regarding the right of deposit. Thus, after sending off instructions to U.S. Minister to Spain Charles Pinckney to work with that government on the immediate crisis, Madison met with French chargé d'affaires Louis-André Pichot about the situation. Even more complicated than the international diplomacy, however, was dealing with the crisis on the domestic front, For, as General James Wilkinson wrote to Senator John Brown, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky, on October 28th, quote, We have rumors flying through the woods from Pensacola to St. Louis that inflame our latent combustibility. The administration had already been preparing for the next session of Congress, and on December 15th, Jefferson transmitted a rather upbeat annual message to that body in which he reported that, quote, Another year has come around and finds us still blessed with peace and friendship abroad, law, order, and religion at home, good affection and harmony with our Indian neighbors, our burdens lightened, yet our income sufficient for the public wants, and the produce of the year great beyond example. The only mention of the Louisiana situation in the message was of the cession of the territory to France. The unaddressed elephant in the room in Jefferson's assessment of foreign affairs in his message was that the fate of Louisiana was believed to be closely tied with the fate of Saint-Domingue. However, Napoleon's dreams for a revival of a French colonial empire were proving to be not quite as easy to make into reality as he would have liked. Though Louverture had been defeated, French forces under the command of General Charles-Victor Emmanuel Leclerc were not able to bring military operations in Saint-Domingue to a close before the rainy season settled in over Hispaniola bringing with it the scourge known as yellow fever. Before long, Leclerc was reporting that he had, quote, 3,600 men in hospital and no day passes without from 200 to 250 men entering the hospitals. Even reinforcements were of no help as they quickly succumbed to the same ailment and by late 1802, quote, an average of 100 men a day died. Meanwhile, any remnants of goodwill towards the French were quashed by Toussaint and his family being arrested and deported to France. Leclerc wrote to Napoleon in early August that, with this move and the news that slavery was being reimposed in other French colonies, quote, the moral force I had obtained here is destroyed. I can do nothing by persuasion. I can depend only on force and I have no troops. Your plans for the colonies are perfectly known. This colony is lost, and once lost, you will never regain it. 
The only troops that Leclerc could depend on were the troops that had defected from Toussaint under the command of black officers like Henri Christophe and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, but their loyalty was tenuous at best. Even with the removal of Toussaint, another plot against the French authorities was discovered in late August, and in mid-October, with paranoia running rampant among the white French officers, and with even black soldiers professing and demonstrating their loyalty to the French being arrested, many of the black generals, including Christophe and Dessalines, had enough and defected back to the rebellion. By that point, Leclerc's French forces were in a decimated state. From an initial force of 34,000, only 2,000 remained, and they were only able to hold the cities of Le Cap, Port-au-Prince, and Le Cai. The rebellion controlled everything else. General Leclerc, despite predicting the eventual defeat, would not bear witness to it, as he too would succumb to yellow fever on November 2, 1802. Upon Leclerc's death, command of the remaining French forces was turned over to the son of the General Rochambeau who had fought alongside American forces during the Revolutionary War. This General Rochambeau was described by historian John Kukla as, quote, a vicious racist committed to a war of extermination against blacks and mulattoes. It doesn't take much to predict that the conflict in Saint-Domingue would only intensify in 1803. Caught in the midst of the Saint-Domingue conflict was our old friend Tobias Lear. Washington's private secretary turned Jefferson's commercial agent in Le Cap was present for the burning of that city in February 1802 and had worked to make his way to Leclerc that night to secure the protection of American ships in the harbor on which many white residents and visitors to Le Cap had taken refuge. Despite Lear's assurances of good intentions of the U.S. towards the French, he was not able to develop a workable relationship with Leclerc as he had with Louverture and the two quarreled throughout the spring over various issues related to American interests in Saint-Domingue. Finally, in late April, Leclerc had enough, and he reminded Lear that, by diplomatic agreement, the U.S. was not allowed to have a consul in a French territory, and Saint-Domingue was a French territory like any other. In no uncertain terms, Leclerc told Lear that he didn't have to go home, but he couldn't stay there. To make the point very clear, Leclerc threw two American captains in jail under trumped-up charges and seized their vessels and the goods on board. By May 6th, Lear had arrived on American soil at Norfolk, Virginia, and made his way to Washington, D.C. to report on the situation to Secretary of State Madison. The hardened French position towards American commercial relations with Saint-Domingue would only further the already-growing animosity of the U.S. towards the consulate government and its colonial plans. Meanwhile, the planned French expedition to take control of Louisiana had been making preparations along the Dutch coast in spring 1802. The French First Consul's plans for the expedition called for it to, quote, have the appearance of being directed on Saint-Domingue and to be carried out, quote, with the shortest possible delay. Part of the delay, though, was that there had been no formal order issued by the Spanish government for the handover. This did not stop Napoleon from appointing Lieutenant General Claude Perrin-Victor as commander of the Louisiana Expedition and Pierre Clément Lossa as the civilian governor of the territory. Finally, on October 25th, the official royal order from Spanish King Carlos IV transferring Louisiana to French control arrived in Paris. But due to the state of operations in Saint-Domingue, some of the forces that had been designated for the Louisiana Expedition had been diverted to Hispaniola. 
Victor Losa and Louisiana would all just have to wait. President Jefferson thankfully did not have to wait any longer for something for which he had been longing his entire presidency to date. On November 17, 1802, Martha Jefferson Randolph and Maria Jefferson Epps and some of their children departed from Albemarle, bound for Washington, D.C., to join their father at the president's house. This trip, described by Martha as, quote, a flying visit only to show that we are in earnest with regard to Washington, would not be nearly as long as the president would have liked. However, as a reflection of his joy at their making the journey, Jefferson paid their expenses for the trip as well as purchased for them, quote, hair pieces and other fashionable goods that Dolly Madison ordered on their behalf from Philadelphia milliners so that the sisters would have the sort of things that were universally worn by ladies in society. Maria's husband, John Wales Epps, accompanied them for part of the trip, while Jefferson sent his personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis, to meet them on the road and accompany them the rest of the way. Contrary to their plans, though, Martha's husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, had been called to Richmond for business, and thus did not join the family on the journey to Washington. As mentioned last episode, Randolph had been for a few months considering purchasing fertile lands in Georgia and transporting some of those he had enslaved on his estate in Virginia there to begin cotton production. Though I haven't been able to confirm this, one has to assume that Randolph would have opted to transport younger enslaved men, and he would have been under no obligation to consider whether or not transporting them would break up families. When the South Carolina Legislative Assembly passed a law that fall prohibiting transporting slaves across that state, the price of transporting or purchasing new enslaved labor for the operation became, quote, prohibitively expensive. Randolph's biographer, William Gaines Jr., notes that, at this time, Randolph, quote, seems to have been animated, if only subconsciously, by a feeling of personal inadequacy and by an increasing sense of isolation from his domestic environment. Randolph had corresponded with his father-in-law frequently thus far since Jefferson assumed the presidency, and around the time that his wife was preparing to travel to Washington, Randolph replied to Jefferson's latest letter asserting that, quote, the last passage of your letter, which seems to embrace me within the narrow circle of your family, affects my heart deeply, but there is a mixture of pain with the emotion, something like shame accompanying it, and checking the swell of tenderness from consciousness that I am so essentially and widely different from all within it as to look like something extraneous, fallen in by accident and destroying the homogeneity. I cannot, like the proverbially silly bird, feel at ease in the company of the swans. Jefferson would swiftly write back that, quote, the shade into which you throw yourself, neither your happiness nor mine will admit that you remain in it. This can be made perfect only by a mutual consciousness of mutual esteem. While my own feelings and desires have always made me look towards you as a part of myself, they have never permitted me to doubt a return of the same affection. I hope, therefore, you will feel a conviction that I hold the virtues of your heart and the powers of your understanding in a far more exalted view than you place them in, and that this conviction will place your mind in the same security and ease in which mine has always been. Though his joy at the arrival of his daughters at the president's house in Washington is without question, one can also imagine that Jefferson was concerned about the son-in-law back in Virginia. As noted by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, The doings of the president's family were not news in those days, 
and personal records tend to become sparse in periods where there was no need for letters. Therefore, we have little beyond fragments of information about this long-awaited visit. We do, however, have some recollections from our friend Margaret Bayard Smith. Though we haven't heard from Margaret since episode 3.3, she has been, during this time, tending to her expanding family with the birth of their first child in November 1801, as well as making herself a fixture in the nascent society of Washington, D.C. While her husband Samuel continued his work on the National Intelligencer, Margaret had been a frequent guest at the President's house along with Secretary of State Madison and his wife Dolly, and Margaret's writings provide accounts of the social life of the early days of the administration, including a note that, despite his protestations of loneliness, Jefferson, quote, had company every day, though his table was rarely laid for more than twelve. Margaret would be one of the Washingtonians to welcome Martha and Maria to the federal capital in November, and after a few weeks, she wrote of the president's two daughters as follows, quote, Miss Steps is beautiful, simplicity and timidity personified when in company, but when alone with you, of communicative and winning manners. Miss Randolph is rather homely, a delicate likeness of her father, but still more interesting than Miss C., She is really one of the most lovely women I've ever met with, her countenance beaming with intelligence, benevolence, and sensibility, and her conversation fulfills all her countenance promises. Her manners, so frank and affectionate, that you know her at once and feel perfectly at your ease with her. Margaret was also quite taken with Jefferson's six-year-old granddaughter, Ellen Randolph, and, quote, spent a day with her afterwards by special invitation. Other members of the family would also use this opportunity to get to know more about the residents of the city which the president called home. Jefferson's 10-year-old grandson, Jeff Randolph, would later recount that during this trip he took, quote, an unauthorized trip with the coachman to the Navy Yard, where he was received with salutes and other honors and served a collation, another word for an informal meal. While his mother would rebuke him for this trip, Jeff recalled that, quote, his grandfather thought the trip a good joke. The family's visit would in fact prove to be the first time that the president's coach had been used in the entire time since he had taken office. Normally, Jefferson rode by himself on horseback anywhere he wanted to go, and he had only bought the carriage in the first place in anticipation of his daughter's coming to visit. Despite his delight at his family's visit, President Jefferson could not afford to tarry long without a response to the New Orleans situation. Two days after his sending his annual message to Congress, the House unanimously approved a resolution calling on the president to provide them with, quote, such papers as the government had relating to the removal of the right of deposit. By the end of the month, Jefferson had transmitted the requested papers and gave assurances to the House that Morales' actions seemed to be a case of overzealous initiative rather than a change of policy by any nation. But French Charge Pichon warned his government that he was concerned that, despite Jefferson's moderation, he might be, quote, impelled toward vigorous action in order not to lose the support of his own partisans. Due to Jefferson's close working relationship with Democratic-Republican leaders in Congress, he was able to keep the situation under control. On January 7, 1803, the House passed resolutions, quote, affirming an unalterable determination to maintain American boundaries and rights of navigation on the Mississippi as established by treaties, while at the same time, quote, 
ascribing the recent action in New Orleans to the unauthorized misconduct of certain individuals rather than to ill faith on the part of the Spanish government. However, a member of the opposition attempted to use the situation in order to take a jab at Jefferson. The administration's intelligence about the session of Louisiana, despite the initial agreement having been concluded a few years back, was still spotty at best. Thus, Jefferson had kept it under wraps as they tried to get a better handle on the situation and determine how to respond. Deciding to try his luck, Representative Roger Griswold, Federalist from Connecticut, yes, the same Roger Griswold who had it out with Matthew Lyon on the floor of the House back in the day, introduced a resolution on January 4, 1803, to request from the president, quote, documents relating to the session of Louisiana, together with a report on the circumstances, unless he should deem it improper to submit these at this time. According to historian Dumas Malone, the aim here was not so much to actually get the information, so much as it was to have Jefferson claim executive privilege and withhold the documents. In the latter instance, Federalists could start to express their concerns about matters in the West. I imagine the argument would go something like, Jefferson and his Republicans say that they're looking out for your best interests, Westerners. But what are they really up to? What do they have to hide? Can we really trust they wouldn't be thrilled to have France take over Louisiana, even if it wasn't in your best interest? Something along those lines. Likewise, revealing how little solid information they had would make the administration look inept and ill-equipped to protect the interests of Americans in the West. Democratic Republicans, and in particular Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, went on the defensive. Randolph reminded members of the House two days after Griswold put forward his resolution of who the true friends of the Westerners were. He brought up a speech that had been delivered by James Monroe, wink-wink, nudge-nudge, Jefferson's friend, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention of 1788. At the time, John Jay, (coughs) Federalist, was Secretary of Foreign Affairs and was being ridiculed about his negotiations with the Spanish, in which he had come away with a treaty giving Spain exclusive navigation rights on the Mississippi River. Monroe had been a fervent opponent, and Randolph used this speech to remind everyone that Federalists would trade away the interests of the West so that Eastern commercial interests were satisfied, while Democratic Republicans like Monroe had been fighting for decades for the rights of those in the West. Now, whether it was planned or just a coincidence, on the same day that the House was voting on what to do about Griswold's resolution, it was rejected, by the way, Jefferson sent over a message to the Senate. He had made a decision about how to approach the New Orleans situation. Given the extraordinary circumstances of the issue, he decided that a minister extraordinary and plenipotentiary was called for, and he had just the person in mind. At the beginning of 1803, James Monroe was just getting settled back into private life. He had just concluded his third two-year term as governor of Virginia in December and had left office on a good note. Despite Federalist efforts in his last term to scrutinize his management of public expenditures, Monroe had proved himself to be an able administrator, and the Virginia General Assembly had noted its, quote, high sense of the distinguished ability, attention to duty, and integrity, with which James Monroe has heretofore discharged every duty of his office. As with many individuals in public service at the time, Monroe had left office deeply in debt, and thus had declined an offer to be put forward to replace Stevens Thompson Mason in the U.S. Senate. 
Monroe needed to make some money by reestablishing his law practice in Richmond. But first, he needed to travel to survey his western landholdings, then take his wife Elizabeth to visit her family in New York, as she had not had an opportunity to visit with her relatives for the six years he had been governor. Before he could get too far in planning his future, though, Monroe received an urgent letter from President Jefferson informing him that he had appointed Monroe as envoy extraordinary to France, the same letter which James read an excerpt from for the opening quote. The situation was desperate, and the president felt that Monroe was the only person who could be trusted for the job. But would Monroe put his personal affairs on hold once more and go back into public service? To find out, I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I'd like to call And the Beat Goes On. Before I go, though, I have lots of thanks to share. First, thanks again to James for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out the various series with which he's collaborated with Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast, including the history of the Civil War in 10 battles, key battles of the American Revolution, and Presidential Fight Club. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music. More information on the Itinerant Band and the History Unplugged series can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I also have a number of listeners to thank. First, thanks so much to listener Michelle, who fulfilled numerous book requests on my wish list just prior to the break. When I reached out to thank her, her reply was that it was my job, quote, to read them and transform them into an entertaining podcast for our listening pleasure. I try to accept that challenge with each episode and hope that I don't disappoint either Michelle or you, dear listener. After the break, I was surprised by the fulfillment of another book request on my wish list from listener Jeremy. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your support. I'm constantly amazed and humbled by the generosity and support that I've received on this podcasting journey. And sometimes, the support goes unnoticed for a bit. I recently discovered Chartable, which allows podcasters to see rankings as well as reviews from other countries. So I discovered a couple of reviews from Europe from a while back that I hadn't seen as I could only see those in the U.S. iTunes store. C.F. Afton from Great Britain left a five-star review titled, Really Interesting, which reads as follows, quote, Great podcast highlighting some interesting parts of U.S. history. Well put together, clear, and keeps me listening. Thank you so much. I also had a review from one of the most whimsical usernames I've seen yet, as it's all emojis. This review is from Monkey Head with Its Eyes Closed, Horse Head, Elephant, Monkey Head with Its Eyes Open, Tiger Head. This user is from Norway and left a five-star review titled Amazing. It reads as follows, quote, John Adams had taste and a sense of humor. Thus, John Adams would have loved this, and so should everyone else. Thank you so much to all of these amazing individuals, and thanks to all of you. You are my motivation to keep going with this project, and I can't thank you enough. If you'd like to leave a rating and review, or check out the book wish list, those are available on the website along with source notes for this episode, links to past episodes, and tons of other resources. If you have any questions or comments, or want to keep up with the latest podcast news, follow me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can also reach out to me via email at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, 
And until next time, take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.